This week, we'll be discussing metrics. We also caught up with Alistair Kroll, author of Lean Analytics, the definitive guide on measuring your startup. All this and more on this episode of Inside Outside. Running a startup is hard. Running one outside the valley is even harder. Inside Outside is a podcast for inside access to startups outside the valley. Each week, we'll bring you real insights, raw stories, and tactical advice from founders and startup teams around the country. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Inside Outside. You're looking to startups outside of Silicon Valley. My name's Matt Boyd. I'm Brian Ardinger. And I'm Paul Jarrett. Episode nine, this week we're going to be talking about measuring your company and the various metrics that come along with that. Sounds good. We've got a good guest to uh, compliment yeah, that Alistair topic. Kroll. Alistair Kroll, the uh, author of Lean Analytics, will be joining us on this podcast episode. I think Shane Mack is a tough follow. Like it is a tough to follow. Be, like you have to follow after that one. Yeah. If you haven't listened to Holy episode eight, smokes. please go back yeah. and listen and, to And the there was more. We're probably going to maybe do another episode because there was just too much in that episode right. of uh, good stuff. I'm so. curious if like everybody, I mean, I got, a, I saw a few tweets and and a few text messages, but I saw um, somebody at Bulu Box, and um, at the end of the day, the person was listening to it, and they just looked at me, and they went, holy crap, like, I have to listen to that, like, too much. I couldn't even keep up. Yeah, you take so notes many. while you're listening, for yeah, sure. exactly, exactly. He, he put on a clinic, so I don't know, I guess I'm I'm curious. It's also got... Did you get, guys feel the same way? Yeah, it's, it's, it was so candid and raw, and I, I don't know if that was good or bad. I mean, I know it's good. So is this the part where we ask the audience, like, what what did you think? Thumbs Let us up know, or like, thumbs down? Yeah, like, I don't even know. How, do well, we, it gave how us are we a, supposed to collect that feedback? It I mean, gave we, us a, we do out all this advice, but, like, how do we actually follow it or are they just commenting know. on facebook or are they calling them the line <laughs> i don't know <laughs> we just do something Ain't nobody got time for that yeah <laughs> um get no it. but seriously like get at us like twit i probably actually anything works because i mean we're all yeah you of, could probably tweet at us what something. do you think brian what's the best way to get at us with that feedback well we, we're pretty much always walking the street <laughs> <laughs> send us a snail mail here's our address <laughs> Here's Find some, us by carrier call, pigeon. Call us for some stamps. We'll send you some stamps. <laughs> we'll teach you how to mail letter. No, but like seriously, like Facebook, Twitter, email, LinkedIn, friends I, and family. What I would like to know is um, if people felt kind of the same way that we felt about the Shane Mack episode and that like it was really raw, it was really um, uh, candid, and, and it's more valuable than kind of the, you know, um, what you're supposed to say. So what do you think so, some common mistakes with founders regarding the measurement of their business? Now, one of the first mistakes I think a lot of startups make is they don't really put a line in the sand of what they're going to measure and why their measuring is important, and they just don't do it. And if you don't measure it, you know, you're not going to get results. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's one of the first mistakes that... Uh, yeah, you'd be surprised. Like, I, I was asking, I've asked so many startups, like, what does their, med- like their uh, metric stack look like? And they're just like, to be honest, we don't measure that much. Like we have Google Analytics mm-hmm. and that's about it. Yeah. Um, and how, like, how do you know if people are actually like engaging with your app in the proper way? Um, my co-founder at my previous company, Eric, always talks about like building like a scientist. And I think that you cannot do that if you do not measure. Right. I think the other thing is you also have on the flip side, you have people that are all into metrics, but they're using metrics way too early. So for example, they go quantitative real early. Like in the, when you're first starting a business, the measurements that you should be looking at are 
you're not going to have an audience enough to do statistical significance and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, you shouldn't go directly to surveys and um, as your core metric uh, of the business uh, early on. Um, but I think a lot of people jump to that. Like, I'll just survey people and, and I'll get, you know, some answers and, and that'll tell me which way to go. People, people don't realize how much data they actually have. Um, I was doing a talk at a company semi-recently and um, I was talking about like the quantified customer service and I was saying like the the data that you have in your customer support line is unbelievable right. and if you could quantify that, if yep. you could do like, and, and I've thought about different ways of doing that, um, potentially sentiment analysis, like looking at the, the things that people are saying and gauging whether they're positive, negative. And I think there are probably algorithm libraries out there to do that. Right. Um, and then building a dashboard around it and, and showing like what things uh, people are talking most about within your customer support. It gives you an amazing insight into the needs of your customer and the product design. I think that a lot of people forget that just like other things in your company like the data part needs to scale. So, um, and it also needs to be repeatable. So a lot of times people I've seen, they'll set something up like in a Google doc or, you know, an Excel sheet and they're like manually putting in information. And frankly, like they just get bored of doing it. And so they don't do (laughs) it anymore. So, um, I think people need to consider that also don't let the data terrify you. You can probably find something in there if you're, you know, just like you, you find the truth you seek out for. I think that applies to this. I see a lot of people get paralysis by analysis, and that's like just the most painful thing to watch when people are early on. Yeah. I think the qualitative side is, is extremely important at that early stage. It's, it's really getting the voice of the customer and, and the really the stories that your customers are saying about you uh, or they're telling their friends and that. Uh, that gives you a lot more insight into what to build uh, and what are the true problems versus like how many people did it actually you know clicked on a particular button. Right. Um, once you get scale and kind of you figured out that problem and you're getting to the, the point of traction, then those numbers and the, the, the amount of people coming to your site can give you some different insights. But I think early on, a lot of entrepreneurs kind of jump over that step because they want to get to some numbers that they can feel like feel like there's some type of solid foundation right. where it may or may not be there. Yeah. And also, you know, the, the data, it's not going to give you the answer. I think yeah. people people forget that, you know, there's kind of that collection stage, the organizational stage. Um, and then there's kind of like that reviewing and actually making a decision based on it. That's, that's actually the hard part is like looking at it and trying to base an informed decision off of what you've collected. And I, you know, always encourage people like, okay, but you know, after all of that is said and done, like put, put yourself in the customer's shoes. Is it the right thing to do? So Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, it's, it needs to be done. It has to be done. It needs to be considered, but at the end of the day, like it's still a human behind all of that, you know, making the decisions. Well, your metrics need to guide your decisions, and I, they've got you've got to. If you're going to measure it, what's the outcome of that number? So, is it going to change your business based on that, having that information? This episode brought to you by Inspro Insurance. We set out with Noah Greenwald to get his thoughts on asset protection as a startup. First and foremost, a startup needs insurance to protect its assets. Assets would include everything from cash to data to hard assets, which could include anything from a computer to, a, to a, something as mundane as a desk chair. Compromise or loss of assets would significantly threaten a startup's ability to continue to operate, especially if it were the cash portions, considering that every startup needs cash to pay rent, to pay payroll, 
to pay the cost of Rackspace or Amazon Cloud or any any other service like that. The process of insuring those assets to avoid the, the risk of, of their loss is relatively simple and straightforward and something that every startup needs to ask about um, as soon as they start operating. Uh, in order to protect your assets, you need to put in place a property policy. I think a lot of people... Um they don't quite know their their business in general, so yep. like they, they it's. Yeah. I, I to be honest, like a lot of the metrics that I've used in the past, the most useful metrics are the ones that come from like the really deep uh, data that we collected that are not like these cookie cutter, out of the book metrics like retention. Yep. I mean, yep. retention is great, uh, and all these like like you know funnel analysis and those kind of things like those are super useful. But some of the stuff that we've uh, that we collected at pre past companies are just like raw out of the database analysis. And it's just lives on some weird backend that we've hacked together. Yep. And I look at them more than anything else. Yep. And I think that comes down to knowing like your business, knowing the data that you've collected and knowing how to kind of churn on that and build something out of that. What are some of the things that you guys, um, for in motion and squiggle, like what are some of the examples or things that you guys have done that, um, you know, uh, would help out people listening to this or help kind of understand because you know just throwing around the term data and metrics is you know pretty yeah, big. So, so let's talk about some of the things that you can measure and why you should probably measure it um, obviously cash on hand it's always one of those <laughs> first uh, metrics like if you don't have cash you don't have a business yeah. and uh, so I think that's one of the things that uh, quite frankly a lot of entrepreneurs forget about and, and you know it's, uh, it's surprising to me but you know knowing your runway and knowing you know down to the minute uh, you know, we're out of cash at this particular time unless we get additional sales or do fundraising or whatever. I feel like that one is, uh, of all the metrics that we're going to mention, <laughs> is the most obvious. Like, if yeah. you're not, if you're not people, measuring your burn rate, right. then you are doing all yeah. of this wrong. <laughs> and go do something else, please. If you're not obsessively <laughs> logging into your bank account every hour on the hour, looking like, what the hell did we spend $11.61 on? Do we need that or do we want that? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But you'd be surprised. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it comes down to even the penny, but I think like yeah. knowing, knowing your burn oh, rate it does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it does. And, no. Like knowing your burn rate, knowing how much cash you have, uh, and knowing how long that cash will last you is pretty freaking important. And I and I think with that, I mean, it also is like, you know, what that will what that will help you kind of figure out is like, you know, because in the startup world you're going for revenue and growth, right? But um, you know, there's different goals. So when you're looking at cash on hand, runway, um, DROC, don't run out of cash, as we call it, D-R-O-C, mm-hmm. um, you know, those things will help you understand kind of where you want to go in the future with your business, right? Do I want to continue to raise capital? Um, and I do that because I'm, you know, not making the appropriate amount of profit or do, am I focusing on profit, which will probably negatively impact growth. Um, or do I just want a runway to extend X amount so I have time to fundraise? So I think those are a lot of kind of later stage things that entrepreneurs and some entrepreneurs I talk to never quite get to. And it's always a shocker to me of like, wait, what do you mean? You know, revenue, growth or profit or, you know, mm-hmm. runway. Like there's there's a lot of different goals in the end of that. Um, of course, make highly profitable money is a great one. Yeah. But, you know, those those things that Brian just talked about the, um, will help you kind of determine those things long term. Well, what about engagement metrics? Something that's even not even on our list, I don't think, but like uh, showing how people are interacting with your app or site or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, 
there, I keep thinking, I mean, I'm trying, there's so many damn tools out there, right? Yeah. Like mixed panel right away came yeah. up for when you're talking about kiss metrics. Optimized lane, um, yeah. unbounce. And, you know, uh, uh, at our company, um, we're at a huge advantage because um, the base of our company is e-commerce. So mm-hmm. there is a bazillion things. Um, and actually our biggest challenge is boiling it down to what's in, what's important to measure it's not you know gathering it or organizing it etc um but i also know that the game changed for us when we subcontracted out to a team of 80 data scientists so even what we were reading online and we were looking and using software when we got this group of people to help us kind of organize that and map it out i mean that's really when you look at our metrics and things started on the uptick so my, my, my biggest insight from metrics came from like when I would just sit and stare at charts, like I would just sit and, and I don't know what this means, but I know it means something. I see a correlation here and then trying to get at the psychology of our users and, and correlating that with, you know, uh, somebody complained, like we have an influx of people complaining about X and we also have a downtick in this metric. Okay, well, there's a correlation here. How do I figure that out? Yeah, you're trying to find some type of signal that you can then dig into. And, yeah. and it's not necessarily digging back into different data. It may be, again, going back out to the customers like and figuring out why did that spike on a Tuesday? Right. And then talking right. to customers that ordered on a Tuesday and figuring out, oh, why did you buy on a Tuesday? Yep. Those kind of things I think are yeah. important. We. I feel like it, every day I have you know certain things that I review for X amount of time, and, and it is a lot of these things that we're talking about is the first thing that I look at, and then I have kind of an afternoon break, and then I go to bed. I try to actually not obsess about looking at them all of them. <laughs> yeah. But the amount of times that I like email somebody on our team, and I'm like, you know, I take a sketch of like the dashboard oh, yeah, that I'm sure. looking at, and I point, I'm like, what's this? And there's no response, and I start panicking, and it's like, oh, we just forgot to like literally line an out of code that's like pulling that info. Yeah, like we changed that something. Happens, yeah, for sure. Oh, that is. Like I, we it would happen with us the in biggest ocean moment ever. <laughs> yeah, it, exactly. It would happen with us where we would um, somebody would push out like double the triggers. This, this month, and all of a sudden, like, crap would just double. What is going on? Right. <laughs> and then I, then I would, like, be like, okay, yeah. let's dig into this. Yeah. And one of, the co- one of the programmers would be like, well, that was my problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is the best when you're, like, looking like something. You're like, oh, shit. And you look at it, and it, it grows. And then, you know, you're like, oh, this can't be correct. It has to be a mistake. And then you're like, wait, triple yeah. check Yeah, like, that. we get super excited. Like, run our revenue the, just doubled. Run the numbers again. <laughs> what, what's going on? Click enter. No, uh, no what, that's right. I want, like, I want to talk about... Like I had mentioned custom metrics, but I still want to harp on that because I, I think it's the most valuable mm-hmm. stuff. One of the insights that we got um, in the earliest, earliest time, like it was like one of the first metrics that we ever custom built, and it was one of the most useful, um, was the amount of time people were... So Squiggle is a, uh, a video conversation app. Right. And so you know we wanted to know how, how people were engaging with this video conversation right. part. So we, we actually started measuring the length of conversation. And it wasn't it wasn't how you think it would be like the length the the longer the conversation actually the worse, so it was kind of a reaffirmation like we actually found that ninety five percent of all conversations on Squiggle were under two minutes in length, which is kind of an interesting thing. We we were trying to like is that good or bad? Yeah, exactly. Is that good or bad? And so yeah. we actually found out that it was good because it was re, reaffirming of our use case. So frictionless instant conversations were happening. Yep, and and. 95% of these conversations, and we had metrics on this. So, I, you know, it, it would 
constantly be uh, reassuring to us that like what we're doing is actually working. Yep. And I think those are the kinds of engagement it's, metrics yeah. that show you. It's hard to. Sorry, go ahead. No, the, the, it's hard to remove your assumptions. Right? Yeah. Like it, it's like to, to remove your emotions, remove your assumptions, look at what's happening and actually say, well, is that good or bad? Exactly. I feel like, you know, people get annoyed with me all the time at work because I, I say that all the time. I'm like, well, well, is that good or bad? Yeah. You know, and it's like, well, of course that's bad. I'm like, but is it? Yeah. Like, is that a bad thing? So, yeah. so some, some of the best metrics are counterintuitive to Yeah, think? I think a lot of times. So, so what are some of the resources that people can go to? Obviously, there's a ton of stuff out there on metrics out in the web. and that, But there's a couple, I think, go-to sources uh, just to get a, a feel for what metrics are. And um, I think Neil Patel is a good one at yep. Quick Sprout. Yep. Uh, mm-hmm. he, like, he writes so much good stuff about metrics. Uh, the, you know, him and... Um, is that the Kiss Metrics blog? Yeah, well, there's two. So Kiss Metrics, he's the founder of, one of the mm-hmm. founders of Kiss Metrics. But also he writes on his own blog called uh, Quick Sprout. Dave McClure's marketing like a pirate. Yeah. Arr, yep. That that completely changed. Um, probably is probably about six months into our company yeah. that completely changed us. Um, I've been totally banging the drum on on yeah. the Dave McClure thing. Startup. Um, yeah, it's called we, Startup Metrics for Pirates. Yes. Yeah. And actually, I just finally found something online. I've had Google Alerts set up, but finally I saw something that was posted online where it's two hours where he actually goes through it. It's always just been mm-hmm. a deck that you kind of have to... Yeah. Interpret. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but now there's actually a link on there where he, I think for two hours at Mixpanel, like actually goes through it. It might be somewhere else, mm-hmm. but... Um, and it's so basic, but... When you start to look at it and you break it down and then you really like I I think the biggest shocker to us when we first looked at it were that is so many things. But after you set them up and you make it repeatable and you make the information and the data pulling into a certain place, like it's it's exponentially easier. So it just just like anything, it looks like a lot up front. Mm-hmm. But if you can get it down, it's so powerful. So before you go Googling as you're listening to us in the car. Uh, it's Dave McClure's the <laughs> Startup Metrics for Pirates. It's R A A R R R, and and really it looks at the metrics at the different stages of your business, or not the stages of your business, but stages of the customer engagement. So it's at the acquisition stage, at the activation stage, at the retention stage, referral, and then revenue. So it's A A R R R, which is let's explain. Uh, so acquisition meaning like they they come in the gate. Well, yep. this is this is interesting because I actually think that you can define it how you want. And I was trying to find out a good time for me to interrupt. So um, (laughs) newsflash, as a subscription company, I have seen actually a lot of other similar subscription companies Mm -hmm. like ours, their decks, their information. It's it's unbelievable what people have actually sent me. So I've seen some pretty big companies in the subscription box industry. Um, The biggest shocker to me was how conservatively in our pitch deck that we were um, using our numbers and our data. And, uh, you know, one thing I remember that blew my mind is um, one of the bigger companies in our industry for subscription boxes. And um, um, I'm not going to, I'm just going to stop there because I'll give away who they are. But they were counting churn as the subscription box. And then even if the person canceled the subscription box and made a full-size purchase, that counted in the whole churn of the customer. Yeah. We, it never even crossed our mind to do that. And then I started looking at some other decks that, yeah, I'm not, let's be clear, I'm not seeking these out, but people are forwarding them to me. Yeah. Um, 
the way that everybody measures 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 stuff differently and they'll you know call it acquisition activation or you know they'll call it their churn or whatever so you know you really need to be ready to explain how you got to that number because you can kind of sugarcoat it with any name yeah. that you want I think Dave McClure kind of defines like acquisition as uh, the customer coming in the gate, however they do. If they're a user, however you acquire them, that's yep. the first stage. Uh, activation is is the actual engagement metrics. They're engaging they doing with something? your app. Are yep. they doing something? Uh, retention is they're coming back to do that something. So uh, our, our kind of retention metric at Squiggle, in coordination with the activation metric, was having one conversation and then seven days later coming back to have that conversation. Within seven days coming back to have that conversation. Uh, and then referral is they're referring people. So people, the, the virality, the, the virality, mm-hmm. the viral loop and then revenue. Ultimately you can monetize on those people. I remember when we started going through this funnel, um, we got to referral and we were like, uh, <laughs> <laughs> just totally missed that part of the funnel. I'm like, uh, yeah, oh. people should talk about it. But that, well, but and, and you're like, you, you think that the, you know, Facebook and LinkedIn, like people are, organically going to share it guess what they don't that, that never they don't happens. no you have to like force Actively that can. interaction it's amazing how many people think that that is going to happen like, <sighs> they're going to build a, they're going to build a product yeah. put it out to the world and it, people just share this thing. Right. it's just going to grow naturally it's embarrassing because i had a decade of marketing experience <laughs> like vp of marketing at a huge company yeah. and like I thought magically people were going to just share our product. We, we need to talk about this for a little ah, bit because yeah. I think that we're kind of uh, we're kind of like <laughs> busting up a little bit of the the belief in general that people are just going to beat a path to your yeah. doorway. Yeah, it's really hard. And like I've seen so many companies like like launch something and just expect that it's just going to happen for them. Yeah. And, and, and it's, I mean, it even, doesn't happen. Even with this podcast, I mean, the more we promote it, the more people listen. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, I mean, it's you've a got active. To, but it's like painful too. And I think like, you know, even coworkers or investors or other people, like they expect that to happen too. Like it's just naturally going to take off. And I think sometimes, I mean, man, I post about this podcast, you know, all the time or retweet or whatever, yeah. or the whole, you know, bang the drum thing. Like, I don't care. Like, people have the magic ability to delete me or avert their <laughs> eyes or, or whatever it is. But I think sometimes people are almost like embarrassed to do that because they have this magical idea that yeah. their product is going to take off by itself. And let it's me tell you, not gonna, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Right. And, and you know, the whole 10 years to be overnight success. And, and yeah, it's really frustrating for me because you know, you, you have to constantly promote either marketing or your own company or whatever. And I think that's a huge mess. I think a lot of unbelievable products have died because there's not, and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be somebody just like posting about it on Facebook, but they don't understand that part of like, it is a long and hard and a painful process to, you know, get people to use that product. And it's just not naturally going to happen. A great resource to, to get into that psychology is a book I called you, Hooked. I saw you looking I'm looking in the back bookshelf. at our, at our, Brian has an amazing bookshelf, by the way. Yeah. So, but anyway, I can't find it in there. Somebody must've grabbed it, but, um, the book is called Hooked. Um, the author's, uh, first name is near. I don't remember his last name. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, um, yeah. he it, basically it's based on a lot of research, like uh, from BJ Fogg out of Stanford, uh, talking about how do you get a product to be habit forming, 
and it's a, an amazing book and it really walks you through the process is it scientifically. More, is it more like scientific or on the psychological side? What would you say? Uh, both. I mean, from the standpoint of there's studies that show, you know, if you yeah. do these particular things, people will be become addicted to whatever particular triggers and that that you put in, you know, ingest into the system. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I highly recommend Googling that and uh, buying the book and or watching a couple of videos around that particular process. You know, there's been companies of late that have specifically built their entire business based on that. So, you know, Product Hunt, um, yeah. Ryan Hoover, uh, you know, based Product Hunt on these triggers and, and kind of proactively built the company based on how do I, you know, make it more virally engaging in that. We had a chance to catch up with Alistair Kroll, the founder of the International Startup Festival in Montreal and co-author of Lean Analytics, a book published by O'Reilly Media and arguably one of the best resources on measurement of a startup. My name is Alistair Kroll. Uh, I'm an author, I'm an entrepreneur, and I seem to have accidentally found a career running some conferences. Very cool. Um, so one of the questions I want to ask is, so you're from Montreal, outside the valley, and that's one of the topics that we always like to discuss with with entrepreneurs so what are the main challenges and opportunities that you see startups building outside the valley uh so there's a few differences in and out of the valley so one of the 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 valley's advantages and assets are also its liabilities Uh, the valley has the highest concentration of highly paid developers Uh, so there are tremendous incentives financial incentives to set things up outside the valley if you want um, you can get access to uh, employees with lower turnover, uh, for lower money, a lot of tax credits. Uh, of course, that comes at a cost. Those, those employees may not be as connected, as well-versed. Not, you, know, you can have an accidental conversation at a coffee shop in San Francisco that um, leads to a business relationship, whereas you probably have to get on a plane if you are outside the valley. But overall, um, you are also able to address problems that, that aren't necessarily in the bubble of the valley. I mean... Remember, the Silicon Valley is where we're creating applications. Like, um, you can auction your parking spot you're about to leave to the next highest bidder, uh, something that collectively I call jerk tech applications. And those things aren't really helping the world, right? So there's a lot of things outside the Valley where you have a perspective on a different set of customers, uh, maybe later in the customer life cycle. And uh, as a result, um, there are a lot of opportunities to build products and target markets that might not seem obvious to someone who's living in the bubble of a tech epicenter. Anything else as far as like the, some of the advantages of building outside? Uh, so I think there's, there's, there's the cost of launching and there's the, the market perspective, as I mentioned. Uh, there's also a lot of tax credits and so on. Uh, I think the, um, some of the challenges that you face uh, can be good for you because uh, you don't have the sort of artificial boost. So you're more likely to build something that has a legitimate business model because you can't sort of get by on on um, smiles and, and glib tones and lots of engagement. I don't think applications like Yo and Meerkat would have done very well. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you can ask whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think that you tend to build more real sustainable businesses outside the valley. Maybe you don't launch as many ideas at a, as, at as high a rate. But I think that the businesses that do survive um, are more sustainable and more likely to weather, for example, a bubble because they had to get by on no revenues earlier. So one of the things we've seen outside of the Valley, as far as the failure, failure, how how it's seen in the Valley versus how it's perceived outside of the Valley. And it seems like it's harder, um, harder outside of the Valley if you fail for people to understand that versus in in the Valley, it seems like. If you fail, there's just another horse to get on top of and, and ride off. 
I think that's not necessarily the perceptive uh, perception anymore. Uh, Mark Andreessen at the Lean Startup Conference a couple of years ago said something about, we get that you failed a few times, but it would be nice if you were successful once in a while. <laughs> I think the, the reality is that Silicon Valley hates failure, but it hates it less than the alternative, which is building something nobody wants. And so I'd rather see you fail and try something else than doggedly keep on throwing bad money after good. The reality is that um, it's not so much a Silicon Valley mindset as it is a traditional business versus startup business mindset. If you really, really internalize the core message of the whole lean startup thing, which is that um, a startup is a, an organization designed to search for a sustainable, repeatable business model. It's a very specific phrasing. You're not designed to execute on a business model. You're designed to search for one. Your whole goal is to find a business model. Um, if you think about the world that way, if you think that your job is to search for a business model, then obviously you're going to fail because it's like when you're looking for your keys. No, they're not behind the couch. No, they're not under the dining room table. No, they're not in the kitchen. Um, and so you're, by definition, searching and failing as an act of trying to finally discover. If you come to startups and you treat them like entrepreneurship, where your job is to execute on an existing business model, then you will say anything that is not successful is bad. Um, and so I think the challenge here is to, for many organizations, is to frame the problem of startups not as did I succeed in building the startup, but did I succeed in learning something? And I've seen this with big companies. Uh, DHL, for example, uh, when it wanted to get into the, uh, when it wondered if it should get into the 3D printing business, rather than spending hundreds of thousands of euros on a, uh, a 3D printing research study, they said we should launch a 3D printing company to find out. And they built one for a small amount of money and it didn't do very well. And it turns out that this was perfect for the organization because they were able to go back and say, great news, we've studied the 3D printing market and we shouldn't be in it. And the alternative would have been, great news, we've studied the 3D printing market, we should be in it, and we happen to have built a startup. And so what they did is they framed success regardless of whether the startup failed or succeeded. That's something that was very appealing to the immune system of a large organization. And I think outside the Valley, it's important to frame that with investors to say, we're not going to launch a company. We're going to study whether or not we should be getting into this business. And, and eventually, if you get entrepreneurs that understand that, they're investing in a startup. They're investing in a, an, an organization being formed to search for a sustainable business, not necessarily to create one. Mm -hmm. So uh, I know in your resume, one of the things you, you started an accelerator early on and before accelerators were too bubblish or whatever. Um, what are some of the kind of top problems and that you regularly see at this early stage, uh, either in accelerators or outside? Sure. So uh, we started an accelerator called Year One Labs, uh, more of an incubator than an accelerator. Uh, we recognized that there were three things that um, early stage companies needed, a great founders, a great idea, and an unfair advantage. And generally, one of the problems with accelerators is that um, they, the people in the accelerator don't necessarily have all three, they have two of them. Uh, so you might have great founders with an unfair advantage, they're industry insiders, but they, they, they don't have a great idea. Help them to find one. Or um, they may have a great idea um, and have great founders, but not have an advantage. You better be able to provide that advantage for them. There are two problems. One is, um, and they're opposite problems. One is the people in the accelerator are so busy searching for new ideas, um, they jump on the new idea immediately without actually uh, having the discipline to say, is there a business model behind it? Uh, is there a go-to-market strategy behind it? How do I make sure that anybody will care? Uh, and like we just spent the last two days here at Emotion um, talking to these companies about their go-to-market strategy, and I think coming out with some pretty concrete ways for them to move forward. But it's very hard for a company to do that themselves. They need someone else who's, who's maybe a little bit of tough love and also an outside perspective to come in and say, 
hey, have you thought about doing this way? Because then you'd have 100% of this problem solved. Um, the other problem is when they come in with a pre-existing notion and they just want to build it. And so they've over, they're overfitting themselves and they really don't want to take any advice. They just want to get on and build the thing they were going to build. And then you're like, well, why'd you come to the accelerator? Why don't you just stay at home and code this thing? What was the point of being here? Uh, and again, it comes down to learning. Um, but it comes down to disciplined learning in search of a business model. If you're just searching without looking for a business model, you're in the former category. You're dabbling around, but you're not being disciplined about is there a business here. If you're in the latter case, you're not searching because you've already decided what you're going to build and you're just trying to power through creating it in the hopes that someone will want it. So you're a metrics analytics type of guy, and a lot of folks aren't. That you have numbers and that scare them. What what would you recommend for startups that obviously know metrics and analytics are important, but how to get into metrics and analytic mindset and, and the importance of that? Um, metrics are really just science. The, the question is, um, what's the biggest assumption about my business right now? How will I test that assumption to see if it's true or false? And what will I do if the assumption is true or false? Now, the metric might be, uh, I, I'm willing to bet that 5% of the people who come to my website will buy something. Or it might be, I think that the average customer will stick around for 20 months paying for my service. Or it might be, somebody uh, who comes into my retail store will spend at least four minutes walking the uh, store aisles. Or it might be the average um, gym subscription to my gym will last 30 months. Whatever those metrics are. You've made an assumption, and that assumption is part of a business model that eventually rolls up to, I can stay in business because my revenues exceed my costs. Um, if you don't like thinking like that, you probably shouldn't be, be in business, or at very least, you shouldn't be in charge of the business. It's okay to work in that business. But if, you, if you're trying to execute against a business model or prove a business model, you've got to understand what the riskiest assumption in your business is right now and how to um, get that to the place it needs to be for your business model to work. Uh, the other thing I would say about metrics is that um, the a lot of people like to throw metrics at something in, in as a substitute for thinking about a problem. So I'm going to get a dashboard or a report with lots of numbers. That's the wrong answer. If a metric won't change your behavior, it's a bad metric. And you need to ask yourself for every piece of data you collect, because you're using up your organization's time and patience, for every piece of data you collect, how are you going to use that metric to change your business? And if you can't answer that clearly, you should really reconsider whether you should be collecting it. So you've seen a lot of startups out there. What, what are some of the best founding teams? What, what makes up that magic of, the, of a good founding team at the early stage? So I wrote a, a post on this uh, in response to Dave McClure. Dave McClure from, from 500 Startups um, said that every team should have a hacker, a hustler, and a designer. Uh, I added a fourth one, which is analyst. And really the four functions are the hacker is going to build things. And they're not an engineer. They're not an architect. They're a hacker because they're going to string things together. Later on, you're going to rip out the guts and rebuild it properly once you've found the business. But in the process of searching for a business, their job is to build like working hypotheses. The hustler is the person who goes out and gets people to try it, gets everyone excited, figures out how to position it, um, probably dealing with investors, but but mostly about uh, thinking about go-to-market, thinking about the, the clever hack that will get them a 1,000 users, that kind of thing. The designer is responsible for every piece of the interface between the product or service and the customer. Uh, that doesn't just mean the UI or UX or the logo. It also means things like the subject lines in the mails, the tone of the mail. If you look at MailChimp, for example, they do a great job of branding. Slack has a really good example. The Slack bot's sort of conversational. Those are all parts of the UX and design. And then finally, there's the analyst, because um, if you don't have a person who's nagging everybody about what did you do and did it make things better or worse and feeding that back in, you don't get the sort of rapid cycle time feedback loop 
that makes startups succeed. That's one of the key advantages a startup has over a big company is this this feedback loop. And uh, I'm not saying you need four employees, but you need four hats. Uh, so usually you'll have um, the designer and uh, hustler will be one person, and then the analyst and hacker will be another. Uh, but everybody should at least be cognizant of the four roles and their relative responsibility and relative importance to the business. Great. So I want to, I want to change the direction a little bit. Uh, obviously, you also do a lot of uh, startup events uh, with O'Reilly and, and the Startup Festival in Montreal. Talk to me a little bit about why events are so important in the startup ecosystem and, and what can entre- entrepreneurs do um, to take advantage of those. Sure. So events, I mean, obviously there's stuff like education, which is great. You can go to the event to get training. But I think the most important thing about events is is it's a really good way to get out of the office at scale. Uh, there's a company I work with, Infoactive, which makes interactive infographics. And the founder, Trina Chiasson, was presenting at a startup showcase event for an O'Reilly Strata conference. And she had her pitch, and it was like a five-minute pitch. And she had about 60 minutes, and the room had about 500 people in it. Her five-minute pitch turned into a 10-second elevator pitch in about... 30 minutes. She gradually winnowed it down and winnowed it down. Imagine how hard it is to get your pitch to go from five minutes, elegant explanation with slides, to like 10 seconds, two questions, next. Um, that happened in the pace, in the matter of an hour, right? So you don't just get to talk to people. You don't just get to pitch them. You get to see how others are pitching. You get to overhear the sort of subtext and the, the, the rumors. Um, and you get to understand what people are concerned about and, and how they acquire new ideas. Every, almost every problem that a startup has is an attention problem. It's very seldom can you build it. It's almost always will anybody care and how are you going to capture their attention. Um, and, and a live event is a place where everybody is clamoring for attention. So it's a perfect example of how you can try to find ways to gather an unfair amount of attention. If you can't do it there, you probably are going to have a very hard time executing. Um, Obviously, if you go to events that have pitch contests and stuff, it's a great way to try your pitch out. Um, and I think the biggest mistake that a lot of startups make is they they often go to these events and they're like, i got to get someone to sign an NDA or I don't want to tell people too much. <laughs> the reality is that 95% of what you do is execution. Someone's already building the thing you think you're so, is so unique and special. And, and, and you will win because you have a better go-to-market strategy. Uber was not the only driving company. Netflix was not the only streaming company. YouTube was not the only web video company. Skype was not the only uh, VoIP company. Every one of these companies won because it had a better go-to-market strategy, not because it had a unique thing. In fact, in almost every one of those cases, the company was not the market uh, first mover. So tell me a little bit about some of the favorite people to read, watch, or listen to for startups. Obviously, I'm a big fan of Eric Ries because he and Steve Blank started all this. Um, And I've seen a lot of authors who started a movement and don't really think deeply about it. Eric is a very thoughtful guy. He continues to learn and be extremely humble. Uh, It's amazing to watch. Uh, One of my favorite books is called Made to Stick by Dan and Chip Heath. Uh, It's an orange book with silver duct tape across the front. And um, it talks about why it is that certain stories stick and certain don't. Uh, there's another book I really love by a guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-G-H-T, called The Righteous Mind. Um, and he has a great TED Talk about the difference between liberals and conservatives as well. But it talks about how your brain um, does moral reasoning rather than rational reasoning. And if you want to understand why people do things, you have to forget about being right and instead focus on uh, being perceived as being right. It's a very unsettling and, and sort of profoundly thoughtful book. Uh, but also a very interesting book to look at. Uh, I also like to read a lot of stuff in the maker movement. I think uh, Make Magazine and a lot of the Maker Fair stuff 
that's that's sort of back where the computer world was in the homebrew computer club, but for many other things. But we're starting to see advances in, um, you know, biotech printing. We're starting to see uh, advances in um, homebrew homebrew medicine. I mean, crazy things coming out of that movement uh, that are all going to apply to maybe a lot Moore's law, but like Ventner's law or somebody else. And if you aren't paying attention to the physical world and how it's changing as it becomes connected, you're almost certainly going to miss out on um, what's happening in the digital world. I think it's too easy to say, separate the two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the final thing is I spend a lot of time reading up on big data, um, partly because I run Strata, which is O'Reilly's big data conference. But I think that um, the fundamental reason we have big data, the reason we have uh, machine learning, the reason we have analytics is to make us decide better, to decide better as a species, as, as a, an organization, as an individual. And if you're not aware of how um, data is changing the world and how we're using data to analyze the world, and you're not thinking about some of the more advanced uh, data science techniques, uh, as I said yesterday, you've kind of brought a knife to a drone fight. Uh, you're in a lot of trouble as a startup. Well, that's it for this episode of Inside Outside. If you have a question, tweet at us at the IO Podcast. Or call our voicemail line 402-413-1194. Special thanks to this week's guest, Alistair Kroll. Music for this podcast is brought to you by bensound.com. Until next time, go build something big.